And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation everybody can get in on. If you want to be on the show as a guest or perhaps to ask a travel question, shoot me an email to fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. We also hope that you'll visit us during the week at our website, fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S. There is no better website, and we have three million unique users per month who will attest to this. You want to plan your next vacation, you're going to get good journalistic information at Fromers.com. Also, please follow us on social media. Just look for the word Fromers on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Now, uh, the nation of Portugal has become extremely popular in recent months. It's become enormous. Well, then in recent years as well. Pauline recently returned for more than a week in Portugal, yes. and I, I am absolutely curious to find out the reason for its popularity. Why was it so popular, and did you have a wonderful time there? Well, I think it's so popular for a couple of reasons. The first is, it is cheap. You pay half as much as you would in a major European city like Paris or London or Rome or a major American city like New York or San Francisco for meals. Can you give us some examples of that? Well, I stayed in a guest house where I had to share a bathroom, but it was a Big, beautiful, very uh, private room, utterly quiet. I had a balcony that overlooked this adorable street full of cafes that closed at night, so I didn't have trouble with with, with too much noise. Guess how much that uh, room cost me. Now, I did share a bathroom. How much, Pauline? $30 $30 a night. That's incredible. For a single room, for, for one, for, for well, one two person. Well, two people could have uh, have shared that room. And I paid a similar amount uh, at an Airbnb uh, in uh, in Porto. And there, too, I got my own little balcony uh, filled with, with houseplants. It was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I, I, I did spend about $110 for my very last night in a gorgeous convent hotel. It used to be a convent, uh, and then it not. But and it wasn't just the stays. I mean, you. I paid my most expensive meal. I went to this very incredible um, tasting menu place for dinner. It was probably 10 courses. The food was one, it was one of the best meals I've ever had. It was called Boy Calvano, and it cost me 39 euros. Most of my meals, I didn't spend more than 12 euros. So 12 euros, that's about $15, $16. Uh, for sit-down white tablecloth restaurants, for fast food lunches, it was just a couple of euros for a meal. That's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And to go to Sintra, which is this incredible former capital of Portugal, about 40 minutes from uh, the 
center of Lisbon, my train fare was four euros round trip. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh my. And Centro, if I remember it, is the Las Vegas of Portugal, isn't it? No. It has casinos? No. no, it does not have casinos. <laughs> you're I've, you're, you're, you're thinking of another sim- place. Sintra, Sintra is where that, that very famous palace is that you see in all the pictures of Portugal with kind of the bright orange and the bright purple on the outside. And oh, it, the, it looks. The, the painting of the walls of the, of the buildings there. Yes, but uh, Sintra was this incredible uh, a place where there were a lot of palaces. Uh, and you go from one to the next. A lot of people go around in a tuk-tuk. I, I actually walked most places. Uh, the Peña Palace uh, was this place with these incredible gardens, which are now a national park. And you're walking through the National Palace and the Peña Palace, and you look at the walls, and there's a, this elaborate tile work, and at the top of it are stalks of corn. And you think, why are there stalks of corn on the palace wall in Portugal? It's because Portugal basically owned the world for a long time during the 17th and 18th centuries. And they were so proud of their explorers, of their colonies, that they put symbols from all the colonies in the interiors of these um, palaces. And then when you're walking around the National Park, there are 90% of the plants they brought back from different parts of the world. So they have a redwood tree growing in one corner, and then they have a a ginkgo tree that is actually gone extinct in China, where it was brought from, but still exists in Portugal. I mean, it's this, you remember the incredible might of Portugal during those centuries. It really was king of the world. And they they paid tribute to that with a magnificent uh, statue at the waterfront of, of Lisbon, as I remember, called the Monument to the Explorers. They were the exploration pioneers of their time. They they sent out ships into the vast unknown, and they discovered other continents. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I went to a church in Porto called São Francesco, St. Francis, who was the humblest of, of the Catholic saints. And yet this church, every inch of it, was slathered with gold leaf. Oh my. It was like walking into Alibaba's cave. <laughs> the whole place just glittered and the, they had t- they had painted the gold leaf on this incredibly elaborate woodwork. So everything was elaborately carved and glittering gold and all for St. Francis, who probably didn't want this done in his name. But <laughs> there you have it. Um, so Sintra was was really... It was a revelation going there, just seeing palace after palace and the incredible wealth of the Portuguese during that era uh, and remembering that they they really did rule the world. And and interestingly, they, they have a whole type of architecture called Manueline architecture, which you see there, in which the... Pillars and any of stonework, it's all carved to look like either the things they conquered, so those corn stalks, which was the New World, which was the Americas, that's where corn came from, or like ship, um, uh, ship 
anchors or uh, twisted ropes. They, they were so proud of being the explorer nation that it made its way into their architecture. And so the architecture of Lisbon and of Sintra and of the rest of Portugal looks like no other place in the world. Pauline, having led the world in exploration, what caused them to lose their position as the most powerful nation on Earth? Well, having, having discovered all these new worlds, what happened to well, them? Well, a couple of things happened. In 1755, one of the worst earthquakes in human history happened in the center of Lisbon. Oh, that's right. And, and that was written about by people in England and in France it, as well. It was felt yeah. as far away as the Philippines, where a huge tsunami occurred. Uh, but uh, basically, it happened on a Sunday morning. Uh, everybody was in church. And suddenly all of the buildings collapsed. In minutes, 15,000 people were killed. And interestingly, the one of the top government officials had the city surrounded by troops because he was sure that people would want to leave because for the next year they had aftershocks every 15 minutes. But he felt that the city should be rebuilt. But that definitely hurt them. And and interestingly, they talk about the the Sintra earthquake as as shifting people's minds across Europe. I mean, this had been the most powerful city in Europe, and it was destroyed. So what did God have against this city? Or many of the people felt, was there a God? Because interestingly, the only part of the city to survive was the red light district. (laughs) It was an area called the Alfama, and it had to do with the type of stone it was built on, but that's who survived. (laughs) And I remember that it was Voltaire, of all people, who wrote a a very famous uh, statement about the, the with, yes, you think earthquake about earthquake in Lisbon. The the uh, the, the French Revolution happened fifty years after it, and probably right. was was partially brought about by that. It really shook people's faith in systems in, and, in and how they fifteen thousand people died. Yes, in in minutes. Uh, so that was one one thing. Uh, the Spanish Armada. The Spanish uh, enlisted the Portuguese into the famous Armada to to fight the Brits, even though the Brits were were um, uh, tied to, to the Portuguese through other treaties, and they got destroyed. M- much of their fleet got destroyed in that armada. That was part of it. Um, and uh, there was also a major civil war between two of the king's sons, each of which w- were trying to rule Portugal, and that really depleted their resources and, and hurt them very, very badly. Um, so there, it was a it was a whole array of things that chipped away, and then in the twentieth century, of course, uh, they had Antonio Salazar, who was one of the worst and longest running dictators, uh, and we'll talk more about that when we get back. We have to take our first break, but I'm going to be talking a lot of this show about Portugal and why you should go. So don't turn that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the travel show. So we were talking about 
Portugal and why it's so popular. I talked about the fact that it's pretty darn cheap compared to the rest of Western Europe. That was a real eye-opener and makes a lot more possible when you visit there. Uh, I talked about how it was once the richest place on earth and you see these churches slathered in gold and these incredible palaces. Um, It's also important to visit because it is a lesson in resiliency. We were just about to speak about this, but for 44 years during the 20th century, from the 1930s to the 1970s, they had an atrocious dictator named Salazar who was in charge and who kept that country away from the rest of the world. And it had devastating consequences. He, he was a man who didn't believe in education. So, uh, you know, university students were harassed. Uh, he really kind of clamped down on the economy. He didn't want them trading or doing much with the rest of the world. They had one of the highest infant mortality rates on the planet, higher than most parts of Africa during the time of Salazar. In fact, J.K. Rowling, the writer of Harry Potter, lived in Portugal for three years, and she named one of her great villains... Salazar. <laughs> Salazar Slytherin was named for the dictator of um, of Portugal. And when you take a tour there, you speak to often the grandchildren of the ch- or the children of people who lived during that time. And one of my tour guides told me about how her father and many other men always had their address and name on a piece of paper in their pocket because anybody could be arrested at any time for the most minor of infractions. And so if you thought you were going to be arrested, you would hand off that piece of paper to somebody in the in, in the vicinity so that your family would know that you were in prison because otherwise they may not know why you disappeared and you may not ever make it back. And so to see this country that now, you know had a long road back from that terrible time, uh, but is now an incredibly progressive nation with a thriving economy, uh, with, yes, they have social problems, everybody does, uh, but for the most part, people there are living very good lives. And to see them have come back from that, when you hear from the parent, the children and the grandchildren of people who lived through this horrible time, I found it very, very moving. It's one of the reasons, Dad, that you didn't write about it much when you were writing Europe on $5 a day, right? I didn't quite realize the effect that Salazar had on the normal life of, of Lisbon. I went there, and it seemed to me to be a terribly backward country yeah. of no interest. Many years ago. Of, of no yeah. cultural achievements whatsoever. Well, at and that I remember time, that I went to look at the uh, Monument to the Explorers, but... I never really quite realized why it had lost its position as one of the leading countries of the world. Well, we can we can thank Salazar. Apparently, one out of eight people in Portugal is nostalgic for the time of Salazar. In fact, my, the man who drove me in from the airport, I was looking around and saying... This is so great. Look at this. This place is thriving. How far you've come since Salazar. And he was very insulted. And he said, well, some people liked Salazar. Some people felt he did a good job and he kept things together. And, you know, he was he was a dictator who wanted to keep people back on the farm. He was really 
very anti-urban, and this man grew up on a farm, and I guess he had fond feelings for Salazar, but he's in the minority. Um, So seeing that was really, really interesting, and also learning about the history. My very first walking tour, we started in a square in front of a church where they told us a terrible, terrible story of how... Uh, one day in church, it was at the time of the bubonic plague, um, one of the, uh, basically, the, when the Inquisition came to Portugal, um, it or came to Spain, I should say, a lot of the Jews who lived in Spain moved to Portugal, and the king at that time welcomed them in. He wanted people, many of whom had good financial knowledge, who were money lenders, who were other professions that the Portuguese needed. So that king welcomed welcomed in the Jews. But then that king's son married a Spanish princess, and one of the parts of their marriage contract was you have to bring the Inquisition to Portugal. In order for this marriage to go forward, you have to get rid of the Jews or make them convert. So a lot of of, uh, uh, Portuguese converted. Uh, Whether or not they actually converted is, is an open question. Many did not. In fact, one of the favorite dishes in Portugal is this chicken sausage that Portuguese new new Christians, they were called, they were actually hidden Jews, they would eat this sausage and pretend it was a pork sausage because they would look at how people lived and try and figure out who was actually being Jewish or not. So anyway, during the bubonic plague, this priest in the church said... The bubonic plague is here because the new Christians didn't really convert, and so we need to slaughter them. And so people went out of the church, and for three days before the king's people could come in and save these new Christians, thousands were slaughtered in Lisbon. Interestingly, we visited that church, and it's... It went through the earthquakes, it had a fire, and because of the slaughter there, the Catholic Church decided not to renovate it. And so it looks like a place where terrible things might have happened. The walls have soot on them and, and fire stains, and it's, it's, it's very dark. It's, it's a very interesting place to be. And because of this, both the Spanish and the Portuguese government have said that if you can prove you were a Sephardic Jew who was kicked out of Portugal or Spain during the Inquisition, we will give you citizenship. You can become an EU citizen. And this happened about a decade ago, and in that time, 30,000 former Jews from those areas have moved back to Portugal and Spain and become EU citizens. Did you know that? That's Dad? absolutely fascinating. Yeah. What a fascinating story. So that was so that was very interesting to learn. When we get back, I'll tell you a little bit more about the nitty-gritty of traveling there by which I mean the food and drink because in Portugal, wow, it's spectacular and very very unique. So different from the rest of the Mediterranean. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. We're talking about my recent trip to Portugal, and I am wearing stretchy pants today because I think I gained a lot of weight. Uh, the thing about Portugal is it's kind of the, it felt like the Germany of the Mediterranean in that the food is very heavy. It's delicious. There's a lot of fresh seafood, but there's also a lot of carbs, and they seem to eat no green vegetables and no fruits. In fact, often you would get a plate with either fish or pork on it, and then a side of potatoes and rice. (laughs) Apparently, 50% of the population is obese. But I have a get-rich-quick scheme, and I I know it's going to work. The Portuguese have created the finest sandwich known to man. It's called the Francesina, and it's actually a takeoff on the Croque Monsieur. It was it was brought, it was created by a man who went to Paris and loved those sandwiches that are open faced with meat and cheese melted on it. But he took it to another level. This sandwich has either four or five different types of meat on it, one of which is usually a linguica sausage, which is this really spicy, delicious sausage. Then they put another piece of bread on top and they drape it with lots of cheese. They put it under the broiler so it gets nicely crisped and melted. And then they put a fried egg on top of it. And then on top of that, they put this beer-based gravy, which also has piro-piro in it, which, which is the spicy stuff. And they pour it on top of it and surround it with French fries. And it was so delicious. A heart attack on a plate. <laughs> but I think anybody who brought it back to the United States could make a mint. <laughs> so that was that was amazing. Who would put in that many hours in creating it? Well, with, no, with, they, they cre- it's fast layers. food there. It's fast food. Fast food? Yeah, yeah. They just, you go to a place and they're, they're quickly layering the sandwiches and they're running it under the broiler. And then they're, I mean, you can make one of these things in three or four minutes. Uh, if you have all the ingredients, but right. yeah, that was so good. And the other great thing about Portuguese cuisine, they have the finest pastries on earth. Move over really? French, France. Yes, this and is. No one ever refers to Portuguese pastries. pastries. We have uh, Danish pastries. We have all, all sorts of other national pastries, but not Portuguese. They, well, we should. They're amazing. Pauline, They're, you have a uh, you have a new. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, let me tell you why activity to go to move to. They're they're that good. Kind of, it, it's a historic reason. They were created by monks and nuns over the centuries, and the monks and nuns would use egg whites to starch their habits and to starch their monastic robes. And so they had a lot of extra yolks available, <laughs> and they used these yolks to create this incredible custard, which is one of the richest custard you, you've ever taken that's used in a lot of these pastries. And then, uh, years later, there was a big civil war between two sons of the king, and the Catholic Church supported the son who lost. And so, in revenge, the son who won, the day he won, he said, monasteries, bye-bye, you're out of business, I'm closing all the monasteries in the country, convents, 
you're going to have to close when the last nun in you dies. So you you can't create any new nuns, and I'm taking over all the convents and all the monasteries. And so these monks overnight were out of work, and so they started bakeries. <laughs> they took the recipes that they had created for these pastries in the monasteries, and they had they had sold these from the monasteries as extra income for those religious orders. And they created these incredible bakeries, and so you're eating these pastries that have been around for hundreds of years, and they're absolutely and delicious. You, you had some of them. I had one a day, often Isn't more that than remarkable? that. That Pauline, was my breakfast. Pauline, is there a Portuguese restaurant in New York City? Have you ever discovered There's one? There's one called Aldea, but it's very high-end Portuguese. And I got to say, I prefer, except for my one great tasting menu meal, I, I really fell in love with the, with the fast food there, you know, the Francesina and these pastries. And then, of course, you wash it all down with Porto. Now, what is port uh, with port, which comes from the city of Porto, kind of port is a fortified wine that was not really created by the Portuguese. That's why the famous ports have the names Graham's on them and other British names. When Napoleon started going to war with the rest of the world, it was a huge problem for Britain because they had nowhere to get wine from. And so they thought, okay, we will import wine from from Portugal. The problem was the Portuguese sent it to them in casks, in these open boats. It would take months to get there. They really didn't have the means to do it well. And by the time the wine got there, it was vinegar. And so the, the British thought, why don't we add brandy to these wines, make it a fortified wine, and that way by the time it gets to us, it'll still be drinkable. And so um, that's how port was created. And when you go to Porto, one of the major activities is going from uh, port house to port house and trying the different ports. And they they have different um, solutions to them. There's the tawny port. There's the ruby port. Um, it, it all depends on how much brandy was put into them, how, how they were uh, stored, whether they were stored in wood or, or in metal. And you learn all of this on these elaborate tours, which are a heck of a lot oh, of fun. Funny. What were they like? Did you take a, a drink? They're of this delicious. Sport? They're delicious. But you really? got to remember, they're not wine. It's liquor. So you, I had my host. You get a little dizzy. My host in it. Porto welcomed me with a glass of port, and then I had to go lie down. <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards, I went right to my bedroom and took a little nap because these are, these are very, very strong. We have to take a break. We're going to talk about something else other than Portugal for a little while, and then we'll finish up with a little more of Portugal. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And from time to time, we take listener questions. We have one right now from Sydney Arfa. Thanks so much for calling, Sid. Nice to speak with you. Likewise. So what's on your mind? 
So I'm planning a trip in the summer of 2020 to some of the Canadian Rocky National Parks. Right. I have a multi-part question. Great. Uh, when should I start searching for the airfare? When should be the best time? Oh, to wait, let's, let's, let's take it one by one. Sure. <laughs> so when you should start searching for the airfare, usually six to eight weeks in advance. If you do it too far in advance, the airlines know they've got you and they will give you their highest rates. They don't start discounting until about eight weeks in advance. Now, that doesn't work if it's a holiday period. So if it's, Jul- well, July 4th wouldn't work for, wouldn't matter for Canada, but say Christmas, New Year's. Uh, and the other thing you need to take into account is, are you planning to use miles for this? Or are you just no, going to pay? No, it'll be uh, non-miles. Okay, because if it was miles, I would have said as far in advance as possible, because that way, if you don't get it with the miles, you can simply keep trying month after month, and sometimes it will open up. So six to eight weeks. Okay, question number two. And how far in advance do I need to reserve lodging for some of these very popular Canadian parks? Right now. So you do that before you get the airfare, because these parks do sell out. Are you When you say lodging, do you mean a tent or a... a, a uh, Resort, a traditional cabin. hotel, motel type. Yeah, I would do that well in advance. Dad, you agree on that one, I agree right? Fully, they're very, they're very popular, and the public uh, reserves these various cabins that each of the Canadian parks maintains. And finally, I'd like to know when should I be looking for and purchasing travel insurance as I'm going out of the uh, United States? You should always purchase travel insurance for any trip anywhere unless it is operated by a government. Except for that, we have learned recently to our dismay that companies as, as long in business and as prestigious as Thomas Cook, of all people, have gone bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, you must take advantage of, of, of uh, travel insurance and get it come what may. Yeah, and in terms of when to get it, yeah. usually you get that a day or two, uh, if you can, after you start perch- after you make your first purchase of travel. Why is that? You're not going to get a hurricane, hopefully, in the Canadian uh, Rockies. <laughs> that, that would be a freak accident. Uh, but say you were going to a Caribbean resort. Once a storm is named or some kind of national pro- natural process is named, you can no longer buy insurance. So by buying it right away at the start of the process when you've bought your first item, um, that's, that's the best time to get covered. Now, it's a little tricky because you don't know how much your airfare will be. But you can oh, usually estimate that and simply buy the insurance that way. Now, there's many ways to buy insurance. I happen to think that there's these websites that are marketplaces for insurance. One is called insuremytrip.com. Another is called squaremouth.com. There's also travelinsurance.com. You put in the rough details of your trip, when you're leaving, where you're going, how much it's going to cost, and your age. They're going to ask that because that factors into this. And then you will get a list of literally three dozen, four dozen policies, all from legitimate companies. Look through the list. Interestingly enough, usually the most expensive policy doesn't cover the most things. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, usually it's some, somewhere in the middle. 
Um, and so, uh, uh, and one of the things you really want to get covered nowadays, and not all policies do, is the uh, going out of business of your travel providers. Not all cover, uh, not all uh, travel insurance policies cover that. Uh, I should be looking for that as well. If it, it it will list in in when you go to insure my trip or Square Mouth or travelinsurance.com, you will check off the policies that seem good to you in terms of price. And then you will be able to put them in a grid four at a time, and they will compare what each one covers and doesn't cover. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and helpful. so it's very helpful. It's a it's a really good good way to to do it. And that was with insuremytrip.com? Insuremytrip.com or squaremouth.com or travelinsurance.com. All three are fine. The other thing I would do, can you be at all flexible on dates? Oh, for sure. Sometime in July, maybe even August. Maybe even August. You know what? Interestingly, because of the way school schedules are, usually late in August will be far less crowded than July vacations at national parks in U.S. and Canada. Oh, that's interesting. Because so many kids have to go back to school early, and so their their parents can't travel at that time. Hence, national parks are much less visited at that point. I will keep that in mind when I make my travel arrangements. All right. Well, we hope you have a wonderful trip, Dad. You've been to Lake Louise, right? It's one of the most beautiful places on earth. Vistas of nature that you will ever see in your entire life. I continue to uh, to dream about it today. I can see it in my vision, in my uh, brain brain uh, vision. And I I wish you the best of trips. All right. We have to take a break. Thank you so much for calling, Sid. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. We've spent a lot of this time talking about Portugal. We talked about how cheap it was. We talked about the incredible historic sites and these spectacular churches that you visit. Uh, What we haven't talked about is the museums. Interestingly, because they were so wealthy for so long, you go to Portugal and you see masterworks by Rembrandt and by Fragonard and by major Portuguese artists. I was so surprised to see these classics of world art in the museums of Porto. And since uh, they've been climbing back, as I said, since Salazar's time, and they also have some spectacular contemporary art museums. There's one in Porto called the Seralves uh, that was amazing. It's just a, it's a, it's a very interesting place. I, a dear friend of mine from high school, two years ago, just decided to pick up and move there. Uh, and her husband was able to get a job in the uh, university. But if she had also bought an apartment there, she could have gotten EU citizenship. She says the health care is amazing and incredibly cheap. She says the people are wonderful and they all speak English because unlike other European countries, the TV shows that come over from the U.S. and the movies that are shown in their theaters from the U.S. aren't dubbed. They listen to them in English. So not only do they learn English in school, it's it's reinforced with popular culture. 
So she's trying to learn Portuguese, but it's been harder because even though she's been living there for two years, everybody speaks to her in English because it's so widely spoken there. Did you know that, Dad? I'm that, completely unaware of that. Yeah. Unaware. So, and other things she told me about it, it it's, it's a fascinating place. I mean, if you are unhappy with something in Portugal, you go into a restaurant, you get sick from the meal, you get bad service in a shop. By law, every business has to have a complaints book. And if you ask for it, they have to give it to you. And usually at that point, the owner of the shop or the restaurant will try and make whatever went wrong go away or better. But if they refuse to give you the complaints book, you call the police. And the police forces them to do that. And they have to give a copy of the complaints book to the local authorities once a month. And if too many things are going wrong with a business, the government gets involved, which is good and bad. It's kind of an interesting, interesting thing. But they, they just had elections and it looks like they, they, they hired some really good people for the most part for to be politicians in that country. So after 44 years, the resilience of the Portuguese, the path they're on now, it's just impressive. It really was a, a wonderfully life-affirming place to be, especially when you learn about all they've overcome in their history. So if you're considering a trip to Portugal, I cannot recommend it highly enough. We have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, do you want to say it, Dad? Uh, we wish you a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage.